The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Welcome. Take your Bible. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you. We're on page 959. We continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians, and today we come to a passage, at least a portion, that is familiar to many, if not most, uh, the passage on love. What we want to do today, though, is to understand this passage in light of the whole. So while you're finding your place there, I want to also welcome those of you that are guests. Uh, there's a connect card in the back of a chair in front of you. We'd love for you as a guest to fill out the information on that card. And at the end of our service, when we receive our offering, if you place that card in the offering plate, that'll let us know that you're here and allow us to touch base with you uh, in the near future. So 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, I'm going to read the entire chapter for the sake of context. Would you please stand as I read? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, cause us to see that now. To see that the greatest is love. Cause us to comprehend what you are saying and what you're not saying. Transform us. Take your word and apply it to us. Collectively as the body of Christ and to us as individuals. Thank you for the way you've been working already this morning in the hearts and lives of your people. Continue to work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Tina Turner said it this way. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Now, that's somebody who's bitter in a relationship right there. What's love but a second-hand emotion? Now, if the Corinthians had wrote Paul and said, Paul, What's love got to do with it? Here's his answer. Everything. It has to do with everything. 
And by the way, love's not an emotion, love's a verb. Love is an active, ongoing thing. What is described here in 1 Corinthians, and this is crucial for you to get this in your mind and heart to comprehend this text. What is described in 1 Corinthians 13 is distinctly Christian. This is not something that the world can model. It is not something that we're going to see. We may see it in part in places, but we cannot see what only God can give. So here's our main idea today. Christ-like love distinctly marks the body of Christ. If you look through the Bible, there are these mountain peak texts. This is one of them. It seems to rise up above the rest. It rises up here in 1 Corinthians. In fact, it rises up between chapters 12 and 14. You've got to understand it in the midst of an explanation about Corinthian, the Corinthian struggle with spiritual gifts and how it was playing out in the life of the church. We have to interpret it in light of the whole. And we've got to interpret it in light of the rest of the Bible. So we'll seek to do that today as we see that Christ-like love distinctly marks the body of Christ in the exercise of spiritual gifts. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Let me give you a few points of clarification before we interpret these verses separately. Paul is not denouncing spiritual gifts. So don't read it that way. Paul is also not saying that love is the only thing. The gifts are necessary for the flourishing of the church. What Paul is saying is that love is the defining characteristic of how the spiritual gifts are exercised. And he's going beyond that to say that love is the defining characteristic of all Christian action. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, so if I'm speaking in a tongue, as he's going to discuss at length in chapter 14, tongues of men and angels, possibly he means here eloquence, that you're eloquent in your speech. So whether you're speaking in tongues or speaking eloquently, or even if he has more meanings than that, if you do it without love, here's all you are. You're just noise. Now people tried to make significance of the noisy gong and the clanging cymbal, and, and possibly there was a specific point of significance in the Corinthian culture from pagan worship. I'm not exactly sure on that, but I do know what he means. He means noise. If that's all you are, that's all you're doing, no matter how eloquent you think you are, or how needed you are, or how wonderful you are. If you not have love, you're nothing. You're just noise. If I have prophetic powers, now watch this. He lists four gifts. If I have prophetic powers, prophecy, if I understand all mysteries, wisdom, and all knowledge, the gift of knowledge, and if I have all faith, the gift of faith, not saving faith, incredible faith, so that as to remove mountains, but I have not love. What does he say next? I am nothing. Now, what is he saying here? In the Corinthian church, the people who had prophecy, the people who had wisdom, the people who had knowledge, the people who had incredible faith, they were something. They were the ones. And Paul says, 
You might have those things, but if you don't have love, here's what you are. You are nothing. Quit thinking too much of yourself. Then he presses beyond spiritual gifts and he uses images from Jesus about giving away all that you have to the poor. And he uses images from the Old Testament of three boys giving themselves up to be burned because of what they believed. And he says, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but if I have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that if they lay down their life for their friends. Jesus specifically is talking about himself, that he's going to lay down his life for us, for his friends. This applies then to the individual. So, So Paul is saying an individual can take what appears to be a sacrificial act and then turn it into a self-promoting act. And when you do that, no matter how spiritual that act is, without love, it's nothing. It gains nothing. Brothers and sisters, I may just be getting old or jaded or both, but the world around us is becoming less loving every day. I'm I'm not saying that I grew up in the golden past when everybody loved each other. That wasn't true. But there wasn't a semblance of love in the culture, the way people did things and the way people treated each other. And what you see is society and culture moving more and more away from those things. And sadly, those attitudes and actions are making their way into the church. And what we're living in is in a post-Christian culture. What Paul was writing to was a pre-Christian culture. All they knew was meanness. Love was a brand new thing. And Paul's saying to them, you can't act like you've always acted. You can't drag Corinthian culture into the church. You're distinct people. Turn to 1 John 4. In his epistle, John is consumed with love. He comes at it from several different angles. And he says in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So what does he say? That we are converted and called to a distinct manner of living. That love is the result of being born of God. The way that we know someone has been born again, one of the clear evidences is that they love and that they are more loving. It brings with it this new life, a knowledge and a reality and a responsibility to love. And that love is to be shared with one another. Now, without this love, what John is saying is we cannot claim to know God. Now, if you go back to 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul's arguing. That Christ-like love distinctly marks the body of Christ in their treatment of one another. If you want to know what a body of Christ is, here's what it is. It's love. Barbara Fredrickson, professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina, wrote a book, Love 2.0. 
The premise of the book is that love needs an upgrade. The old love, she says, is outmoded and we need a new model. So what does that look like to her? These are her words, not mine. Quote, love is not exclusive. Love's time scale is far shorter than we typically think. Love, as you will see, is not lasting. And perhaps the most challenging of all, love is not unconditional. So then what is love to Miss Fredrickson? Quote, Love is the micro moment of warmth and connection that you share with another living being. Love is an emotion, a momentary state. Now you, you can shake your head and be discouraged with that, but let's just be honest. Dr. Fredrickson is simply explaining the culture. That love has been narrowed down to a moment. It's an emotion. It, it's a feeling. Then we come to chapter 13, verse 4. Now I've read these at weddings. You ever been to weddings? Somebody reads this text. They're looking at each other. Oh. And I'm standing here going, yep. You're about to find out what these words mean. <laughs> Not with cynicism. Not with cynicism. This is reality. Emotion is not going to carry you, brothers and sisters. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. God is love, right? Be imitators of God. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the model that we hold up, the model that we look to as to what it looks like to walk in love is Christ. So you could take Christ and replace it for the word love and read it this way. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. Christ is not arrogant or rude. Christ does not insist on his own way. Christ is not irritable or resentful. Christ does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and loved among us. See, he didn't simply come and explain love. He demonstrated love. He demonstrated love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to act. He acted first. That's what love does. Now this paragraph, this is crucial, is made up of 15 verbs, not 15 adjectives. So these words are not describing a noun, love as a noun. What it is saying is present active indicatives. These are things that are true in the present in an active way. So love is patient and kind. Now, if I'm going to be patient and kind, 
Can I do that in a vacuum by myself? No. Patience and kindness requires somebody else to be patient and kind with. So what does it mean to be patient? It means to forbear or to put up with another person's weakness and weirdness. That's what it means. I got, I got to be patient. It does not mean that I'm ignoring or indifferent to sin. That there are times that I'm even patient with offense. That I'm bearing with it. That I'm kind. That we are called to love is kind. This is the heart of of the Christian faith. God himself is described as patient and kind. Jesus emulated kindness. That is mercy, forgiveness, compassion. Now this next group is the opposite of patient and kind. As he goes through and says, this is what love is not. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Now remember, Back in chapter 12, he says, the foot says, I'm not a hand. Now, what, what's driving that? That's envy. I'm envious that I'm, I don't have this gift or I'm not able to operate in this gift. Then he says, it does not boast. That is, I got this gift and aren't you really proud of me? Don't you really think I'm something? Which leads to the next word, it is not arrogant, proud, or puffed up, which by the way, Paul uses that word five times in, in 1 Corinthians. This was a major, major issue going on at Corinth. And listen, brothers and sisters, it's a major, major issue today. I just want to ask this question. You know, everybody talk about self-esteem and our young people need self-esteem. R- really? Our young people need more self-esteem. I'm not picking on young people in the moment. This is the most arrogant generation ever. In this push to self-esteem, what we've made life is we've made it about little Johnny and little Susie. And when you make life about somebody and they become the center of the universe, you know what they're going to become? Arrogant. Proud. Boastful. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Now, these two go hand in hand. That means as you press to the front of the line, you assume you deserve to be in the front of the line. So you rudely make your way there, insisting that others step aside. Now, rudeness involves what you say and do. It ignores others. It ignores their likes and dislikes. You disrespect them by ignoring them. Now, be careful with this illustration. Southerners are better than Northerners, and Northerners are not worse than Southerners. But I have this conversation often. As people move here from up north and say, they'll say it like this. People here are just so nice. A couple weeks ago, a lady said, I wrote somebody a thank you note, and they wrote me a thank you note for the thank you note. What is that? (laughs) You know? Here's, here's what's going on in the South. And it's dying quick, really quick. Christianity had a prevalent influence in the South for a very long time. So what you were seeing were the influence of Christians as it related to rudeness and arrogance and those kind of things as they played out societally. As more and more the Christian church dies, you will see more and more rudeness and arrogance 
and pressing to the front of the line happening. It's what culture looks like without Christ. You go most anywhere in the world. I remember the first time I flew through, I won't say the country, and uh, I was with three dudes from the, we were all Southern boys, and, and we got to this place in the airport, and people just kept jumping in front of us, and I finally looked at them, and I said, boys, if we're going home, we're going to have to get to the front of this line because nobody's going to let us through. They're just going to stand here and let us wait for them as long as, as, long as we stand here and, be, and try to be polite. That's just what happens in the world. Now, if we live in an envy, boastful, proud, arrogant, rude, insisting on your own way, you know what's coming next? Irritable and resentful. You just notice how everybody's in a bad mood? People on the verge of being mad and angry in an instant's notice? These two go hand in hand with each other. People easily angered, then they treat someone because of that anger or that perceived offense that they've given them, and they're mean to people. Now, I want to make an appeal right here. The political season is upon us. And brothers and sisters, I have never known Parkwood in my history to have any form of divide among her except four years ago. It didn't happen as much congregationally as it happened on social media. But you hear me, brothers and sisters. Everybody understand this. There are Republicans and Democrats who are members of this church. Now don't write me letters, whichever you are, Republican or Democrat, that I'm siding with one of the parties, because I'm not. I am not. I am a registered independent, and I always will be. Not because I think that's righteous. It's because I'm not going to take a side congregationally. And when you size each other up as non-Christian on the other side because of your political affiliation, you're going to mistreat each other. And you must stop it. That is not Christian. The election in the United States must not divide this local church. Amen. Now, (laughs) I don't want to say much more about it. Please don't be irritable and resentful over it. And don't say things that are clearly unchristian online. I'll stop right there. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, again, here's where the culture is pressing in on us. The culture says you tolerate everything. You promote everything. You deny people nothing. This week in Christianity Today, which used to be, it was started by Billy Graham. It's no longer run by the Graham organization by any stretch of the imagination. They ran an article this week on polyamory. That's when married people invite someone else into their relationship, as many as they want to. And this article was pointed at Christian counselors and pastors that we've got to wake up and be supportive. What? I told you, brothers and sisters, when we swung the door open to say marriage was no longer defined as a man and woman, we swung it open to things you never imagined. And this isn't all that's going to come. And here's what the culture's going to tell us. We're not loving if we don't embrace it. Here's what we're going to do, and here's what we're doing. We're destroying each other with these things. 
We're hurting ourselves in ways that we don't even comprehend yet. And and what we say as Christians is the loving thing to do is to rejoice in the truth. We don't rejoice in sin and wrongdoing. We delight in righteousness because that's how we flourish and advance as a people. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, there's poetry here, and I want you to see it. Look, Look at how bears and endures parallel each other and believes and hopes. So he begins and ends with the same thought. Love bears all things. That means love endures something unpleasant. Either in a relationship or for the sake of the gospel. That's what love does. Why does it do that? Because love believes all things. It doesn't mean you believe the best in people. We're realistic about people. That's why we have to be patient and kind and not irritable. We understand people. But we believe God. And we believe it when God says, He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We believe that God can make an old man new. We believe that he can transform a person into the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We hope all things. That's beyond the here and now. We understand that people disappoint, life is hard, but we maintain hope. We see beyond this moment to that which is coming. And that means by love we endure all things. That means we face with courage. We look at it and we say the courageous thing to do here is love. So brothers and sisters, some of you are in a sheer panic about the, there you go, it's everywhere. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it. You study history, every 100 to 150 years, something has swept through the world that a lot of people have died. And we think we're educated enough that we can control anything. And we might find a vaccination for it, and we might not. Some of you are old enough to remember polio. Thank God a vaccination came for that, but it was tough days. I'm going to tell you what love's going to do. Love's going to endure it. Love's not going to get a face mask and go hide underneath your house for six months. Christians are going to get to be Christians if it comes. And we're going to get to decide whether we're going to love our neighbor. You say, well, we might die. Okay. How about our lost neighbors who die? Who don't know Christ. I'm going to tell you, it comes, listen to me, it comes that evangelical church is going to get a window to preach the gospel. If she retreats to take care of herself, she will miss it. Love endures. Now, is love simply something in the here and now? The answer is no. Christ-like love distinctly marks the body of Christ for all eternity. 
Love never ends. Now, I've read it as the end of the, of, of the, of the flow of what love is. I've ended right there. And, and I, I got rebuked this week. It's the beginning of the next paragraph. It is the introductory sentence into the next paragraph. Love never ends. That means this. It doesn't mean temporally only that love in the Christian continues for the rest of life or take it in a marriage relationship that we till death do us part. That's what Christian love looks like. But what he's saying here is is that love is eternal. It is non-perishable. It is death proof. It's going to see beyond death. It is permanent. And it injects importance into the present today. He says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So he's drawing a comparison here between eternal and temporal. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge are not going to last forever. They are restricted to this age. There's not going to be a necessity for the spiritual gifts in heaven. Now, they're necessary now, and they need to be operated now, but but, but God is saying to us, they're going to come to an end. They are temporary. But what is eternal, what continues is love. So why are they going to pass away? He, He answers. Because of the difference between the partial or the imperfect and the perfect. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So let's first nail down the perfect. There's a lot of hermeneutic gymnastics been done. What I mean by hermeneutic is interpreting. So here's what people will do, and I'm not going to say I've never done it because I know that I have. I've tried to repent of it where I know I've done it. But we take the Bible and we make it mean what we want it to mean. So in an attempt to explain away spiritual gifts, people have changed the meaning of this text. The perfect The obvious reading of the perfect coming is Christ. That when Christ comes, the partial is going to be done away with. So the perfect is referring to the arrival of Christ and his kingdom when all of God's purposes for human beings will be realized and fulfilled. So he says, verse 11, this is imperfect. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So that's a comparison between perfect and imperfect that we know as adults we're not perfect. It's, it falls. For we now see in a mirror dimly. Now a mirror is a pretty good representation of who we are, but it's not a full representation of who we are. He says, then we will see face to face. So what we see of the things of God is in a mirror. We see it, but we see it dimly. He says, then we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now let me offer a warning. That does not mean you become omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. He's just saying God's going to bring a completeness to our knowing, unlike anything we now know. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him face to face. No longer any separation, no longer need to hide, no longer need for a cloud as you saw in the Old Testament. We will see him face to face. So until then, and then, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three. 
Now, something very significant happened this week in the midst of my study is this word abide. It's present, active, indicative. And, as, as, and through the study, I saw this, and through the help of others, that Paul ties faith and hope with love. He says, love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Now, Paul here is not denying that faith and hope will be fulfilled in a significant way when Jesus returns. But they will remain in a significant way when Jesus returns, though they will be in a different sense. So life in the coming age will continue to be marked by trust in God and hope in God. Or let me ask it this way. Will you ever stop trusting God? Will you ever stop hoping in God? No. Believers will continue to rely on him and look forward to every moment of the future, however that is, in eternity, we will continue to look. So what's, this is one of those moments, Tom Schreiner was very helpful with this, it's one of those moments where you have continuity and discontinuity in the Bible. So something's continuing but not continuing, but it's still continuing. And it's a little confusing to see it. But these three things remain. Faith, hope. Who has faith and hope? We do. And love. Now there's something different about love, and that's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. So why is love the greatest? Number one, God is love. Number two, Christ, the incarnate Son of God, clearly displayed and demonstrated this love to us. So that number three, love becomes the foundational virtue that characterizes the people of God. This is what makes God's people distinct. Though every believer is gifted, not all of us possess the same gift. And now we know in this text that those gifts are coming to an end. But we do all possess love because love is from God and those who are born of God love. All Christians possess it. It is active. It is to be worked out and imitated in our lives. And this love remains forever. So what then? Here's my question I have for you today. Does Christ-like love distinctly mark Parkwood? Brothers and sisters, I, I don't ask this question lightly. And what I'm about to do, I do so pastorally. Sometimes, when you're working on a sermon, God lets you live it. <laughs> it's not so much the school of the books throughout the week. It's the school of experience that God takes you through while you're reading the books. And I'm going to start by saying it this way. This has been a hard week in the life of this church. It's been a difficult week. Now I'm going to use three instances. And for those of you who've been going through difficulty that I don't explain your instance, I'm not belittling what you went through. This week I had a meeting with Sharon Philemon. Sharon has an inoperable, uncurable blank brain tumor 
Our conversation started this way. I'm dying. And throughout the conversation with his dear sweet wife, Christy, he time and time again looked at her and said, this woman has loved me in a way I never thought imaginable. And as the conversation progressed, he over and over again brought up how his growth group has loved and served and been there for his family through the midst of this ordeal. Number two, Marlene Van Tassel had ALS. If you don't know what ALS is, that's Lou Gehrig's disease. Your muscles in your body shut down until it, it makes its way to here to where you can no longer move anything and you die. With ALS, you keep your right clear mind until the very last moment. It's an awful disease. Right after I became a Christian, a local youth pastor where I was from got ALS. You know what his wife did? She loaded him up and dropped him off at a rest home and left him. Not this family. Not this church family. Up until the very end, they were at Marlene's side, loving her and caring for her and being loved by her. Somebody said to me, this morning, I never one time heard her complain. Never. I finished that funeral. I get in my car. I want to go see Rick Martin. Rick and I go back a long way. We share some things personally, fishing and hunting and some other things. So Rick's not only a member of this church, Rick is a friend. And I thought he was still in Charlotte. I find out on my way he's been moved to Robin Johnson and I'm told he's unconscious. I'm devastated. It was five o'clock traffic on Friday afternoon and all the way over there and praying, Lord, please, please let me talk to Rick one more time. And I get there and not only am I gonna get to talk to Rick, God sends me at the right moment because Rick wakes up and realizes he's at Robin Johnson's house and why he's there. He knew he had cancer and he knew this cancer was probably going to mean the end, but he had no idea on Thursday it could be in a few days. So there with his loving family who's walked every moment we cried and we prayed and we sought the Lord. And then yesterday and Friday and I'm sure today, member after member of their growth group in this church come through to minister to my brother. Standing in the hallway with one of our members who works downtown Charlotte and he was explaining to one of his friends at work what was going on because in this particular growth group, they've had some real hard things happen in the last several months to where they've got an opportunity to love on each other. And this guy, who's not a Christian, said, man, something must be wrong with y'all. It kind of took this guy back for a moment to which he responded this way. No, no. You see, you don't have any connection with people. When you get connected with people, 
people have problems. And the difference between me and you is we are loving each other through it. Now, brothers and sisters, you hear me. Jesus said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples. If you have, you know, love for one another. This is how the world's going to know we're Christians. That there's something absolutely distinct happening and going on with us that we love one another in the midst of difficulty in spite of our weirdness. We love each other. We press on and we move through life together. And, and at the same time, we love those who are our neighbor. And we love them for the sake of the gospel. So I ask you again, what's love got to do with it? The answer is everything. If we are not, we don't have love, you hear me? We're nothing. Without love, we might as well take the sign down, turn the lights off, and lock the doors. Because without love, we're nothing. He has called us to distinctly be his people in a world that desperately needs to see and experience what love really is. Let's pray. Lord, I plead on behalf of the men and women in this room, those who feel unloved, those who feel like they could never be loved, calls us anew and afresh to remember that you demonstrated a love for us, that you loved us first, that while we were still sinners, there was nothing we did. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with resentment and pain and things that have been dealt with them. I pray that you give them forbearance, forgiveness, kindness. They won't be resentful. That they'll act I pray for marriages that people decided they're not in love anymore. No, they've chosen not to love anymore. May they repent of that in love. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would distinctly be your people. I pray for us as individuals that we would distinctly be your people. And if we can say we are not, that we would look to Christ and seek your forgiveness and salvation. Lord, as we sing this great hymn of the love of God, crush our hearts and encourage us at the same time with how great your love is. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.